listen to CJSW all day long, but now CJSW wants to listen to you. Go to cjsw.com survey to submit your feedback and be entered to win one of two Slat Island Discovery Passes. You are listening to Mosaic Talk, a spoken word show about race relations in Canada. Before we begin our show, it's important to acknowledge the land that we're on. By acknowledging the land, we are respecting the Indigenous peoples, their contribution and ways of knowing, which are reflected through the stories and songs that have lived in this land for thousands of years. We would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, compromising of the Siksika, Pigani, and Ghana First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspa, and Wesley First Nation. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. We feel most when we don't know. If we shout the lines, there'll be no war zone. I don't know we go on, till we hold on. I just wanted to let you know. Mosaic Talk. Hello and welcome to Mosaic Talk. This is a show led by Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation. And I'm your host, Iman Bukhari. We mainly discuss race relations in Canada and its various intersectionalities on this show. And today, I want to talk about education. Now, even if you're not a student, the impact of the education system on our future and our current society is an importance we really can't deny. But do we pay attention to it? Or at least enough attention to it? Are we paying enough attention to our systems and who and what it supports? And are we making sure that we're doing the right thing? And I have a special guest on the show to talk about this, but before we get to our interview, I want to play a song for you. And this is a song titled Samasur, which means We Are the South. And this track is by a Chilean French artist named Anna Tejot, featuring Palestinian British rapper named Shadia Mansour. The song is about the importance of resistance and the movements of resistance around the world. Tú nos dices que debemos sentarnos, pero las ideas solo pueden levantarnos, caminar, correr, no rendirse ni retroceder, ver, aprender cómo esponja absorbe. Nadie sobre todos, faltan todos, suman todos para todos, todo para nosotros. Soñamos en grande que se caiga el imperio, lo gritamos algo, no queda más remedio. Esto no es utopía, es alegre rebeldía del baile de los que sobran de la danza de mi mía. Levantarnos para decir ya vas, ni África ni América Latina se suba. Un barro con casco con la pizza patear el fiasco, provocar un social terremoto en este charco.
Venezuela, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Mozambique, Costa Rica, Camerún, Congo, Cuba, Somalia, México, República Dominicana, Tanzania, fuera, Yankee de América Latina, franceses, ingleses y holandeses, yo te quiero libre. All right, listeners, so thank you again for tuning into Mosaic Talk. Today in the studio, we have Barbara Silva. She's the Communications Director of SOS, which stands for Support Our Students. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. And you? I'm great. Good. And I'm wondering if you can tell our audience a little bit about yourself, whether it's hobbies, interests, your journey, any anything. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, my name is Barbara Silva. Um, I am of Chilean descent. So everyone in my family was born in Chile, but I was born here in Canada, out in Ontario. Um, my parents came to Canada with the intention of doing um, a scholarship. And while they were here, there was a coup, a military coup in Chile, and we were unable to return. So we've been in Canada since 1971. And I spent the majority of my school years moving around excessively. So I, I went to 11 different schools across Canada growing up. I really enjoy uh, playing soccer. I love snowboarding. And I love politics. And, I, and I'm, I'm very passionate about public education. So I started out my life as an engineer. And I left engineering to become a teacher. Uh, so for me, public education is uh, ground one for democracy, for social justice. And it's something I've always been very passionate about. Nice. And where did you teach? Like what cities? I taught in Airdrie. Oh, so okay. I only really taught for four years. So I, I was an engineer for six years. I went back to school for a year out in Ontario and then came back and taught high school math and Spanish for three or four years in Airdrie High School. Mm -hmm. And how was that? Uh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, seeing different kinds of kids trying to inspire them I really feel strongly that things that you're passionate about are contagious mm -hmm. and I wanted I wanted them to catch the love of math that I had and so I, I enjoyed it I enjoyed it a lot absolutely that's awesome and then where does support our students fit in and also what is it so support our students came around uh, in 2015 around the provincial election It was born out of parental concern. So I've seen the system from almost every possible aspect as a student, as a teacher, and then as a parent with kids in the system. And we were concerned then that the apprentice budget was going to result in cuts to the system. And, and as parents, we were concerned about it. So we campaigned and tried to make public education an election issue in 2015, which I think we were very successful in doing. And once there was a change in government, we lost some parents because they felt like we had achieved our goal. There was a change in government. Work was done. They went on to other things. And a few of us stayed on to continue to talk about and try to enforce the changes that we needed, which as we moved along, we realized that all of the inequities in public education stem from systemic oppression, uh, biases, and, uh, and inequities that we should be fixing at base level. So we, we've continued on with our advocacy, and that's what we do is advocate for an equitable and accessible and universal public education system in Alberta. And I think you've kind of already mentioned the mission there a little bit, but if you can go into a little bit more greater details in terms of what the real goal is and also the different ways that you perhaps do it, um, can anybody get involved, things like that? Yeah, so we started looking at things like how the system is funded. And, you know, one of the most obvious inequities was that in Alberta we fund private schools to the tune of $278 million a year. So one of the things that the average person feels is... The amount of fundraising 
that parents have to do in a system. And so when we have to go back to parents through user fees and ask them to fundraise, while $278 million leaves the system to, to fund private schools, there's a very big inequity there. And so we start talking and start looking at the access that our most marginalized kids have. Kids living in poverty, kids of color, newcomer kids, kids with English as a second language. What is their experience in the system? Because we feel really strongly that when you build an education system around our most marginalized kids, you make the system better for everyone. And and that's our goal. So we do that by writing op-eds. We do speaking engagements. Um, we have done, we did a four-city tour of a documentary called Backpack Full of Cash that highlights the inequities for, for kids. Um, and, and generally try to speak to the general public and educate the general public about how inequitable the system is in Alberta. And we do it through this thing called choice, right? So we let kids choose French immersion or they choose they choose to apply to these schools. But the reality is, is that schools choose the students. And who gets in and who doesn't get in is a real uh, indictment on, on the inequity within our system. Mm-hmm. And so... You kind of you kind of touched on race quite a bit here as well, and I know I wanted to ask you a few other questions about that, uh, particularly action against racism in education. I know that's another organization. So so that's another organization, and I'm just wondering how how do these two fit in together? Is that like another chapter? Or? So when we started uh, support our students, Alberta, we were we were thinking about sort of those everyday experiences like fundraising and class size Mm -hmm. um, and whether kids had access to teacher aids and resources. And we realized that there was a lot of overlap between those experiences and how significantly more pronounced those experiences were for kids of color. And we started hearing about um, kids being streamed. So kids who in, in, in high school were consistently pushed into the Dash 2 or the less academic stream than the Dash 1. We consistently heard about kids who were subject to disproportionate levels of discipline in their school. We consistently heard kids of uh, with ESL being streamed out of programs. And we realized that the overarching theme here was systemic racism. And that when we spoke about that, uh, there's a lot of resistance and fragility. And that it deserved its own discussion apart from other marginalizations. So while there's a lot of intersectionality, we found that kids of color, families of color, have a very distinct voice and a very distinct experience, and we wanted it to be named and identified separately. And so that's why we created another organization called Action Against Racism in Education. Because what happens in the system is they like to cover everything under this education policy that school boards have called safe and caring policy. But the reality is, Kids of color want their experience to be identified as oppressive and racist. And so that's what that group aims to do, is to identify it, call it, um, and address it uniquely. Mm-hmm. And so both these organizations, they're not for profit. Are they, or is it a lot of volunteer-run folks? Or So Action Against Racism in Education isn't even formally a society. It's just a group of people who are concerned about the experiences of children of color and and children living in the margins, uh, newcomer children, children uh, from war-torn countries living in trauma, uh, to discuss their experiences in the system. Support Our Students Alberta is a nonprofit society, and that's run, again, by just a very handful of volunteers, like three of us, to discuss equitable public education. And so those two organizations overlap, and of course, I uh, volunteer on both boards. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's huge, and I really want our listeners to, to know about this, because I meet a lot of folks, and 
you know, in, in the community doing a lot of amazing work and they're most of them are volunteer based, like the ones that are truly like super passionate and not, you know, all about the numbers or funding or whatever are the ones that are volunteer based and it takes a lot of effort. It's a it's a catch twenty two, right? Because you're you're not fueled by the money, you're exclusively fueled by the passion. But it also limits the amount of work that you can do because you don't have the financial resources to do the work. So there's there is a catch twenty two. Obviously, if we had more financial resources, we could do more work. Um, but unfortunately, it's the passion that keeps us going, and it's the passion that keeps us pure as well, right? We don't have to represent anyone. We don't have to answer to anyone. We're not funded by anyone. So our positions are true to our principles, and they're true to the original cause, and they haven't varied from that since we started. So that's something I'm very proud of of the work that we do. So do you hear about a lot of experiences? And I'm also wondering about that because, say, if I'm a parent and I have a child who goes through, for example, a racist experience within a school system and the school isn't doing much about it, can we advocate towards your organization and maybe ask them to help or at least help in some way? So we hear a lot of stories. Consistently, we get letters from kids across the country who've experienced, again, like I said, academic streaming. So we've had letters from students uh, in Edmonton, particularly, who want to access the Dash One and who are consistently counseled out of doing that. And that's that's life-changing. So that means it's very difficult for you to access post-secondary, impossible to access mm-hmm. post-secondary education unless you take a Dash One. We hear about bullying. We hear about kids who have English as a second language counseled out of programs. We hear it all the time. Unfortunately, as an organization, we don't advocate for individual cases. So we would we would give advice and speak to people who come to us. But really what we're trying to do is affect policy change and systemic change and organizational change across the province for education. So we really strongly try to have discussions with the government, with MLAs, with trustees, school boards, teachers, parents about why the system is not as strong as it could be and where the inequities lie. And how has that experience been? I know we just changed government, so you can't say anything right now. And there's probably a lot to say about that anyway, but um, at least in the past. You know, we we struggle a little bit because we it's difficult to see the progress you make when you're in it. So when we started, the discussion was nearly impossible to have. It was really difficult to tell people that programs of choice segregate students. It was difficult to, to challenge people to recognize their own privilege Uh, and their own biases in always trying to access the best for their own children and who we are leaving behind when we exercise our privilege that way. So we had an enormous amount of resistance. People, when they hear French immersion is considered the private school within the public system, that French immersion um, consistently counsels out children with behavioral issues, ESL students, students with learning disabilities and what's left is this sort of very homogeneous easy to teach population people lose their minds and they come at us very hard and we had a lot of that we still do but the conversation has evolved and it it sort of speaks to the the point of reiterating your point reading or reiterating your point over and over and over again because the truth stands that test of time and people have started to see why charter schools and schools of choice uh, and alternative programming, who that lets in and who that excludes. And so we're, the, the conversation has come a long way in four years. We still have a lot of resistance. It's still about challenging people's privilege, which is a very difficult thing to do. And I don't think the conversation is going to get easier. It's going to get a little bit harder because of the new government. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but we're up to the challenge. And just uh, talking a little bit about the new government, I know they've been saying that they want to take things back to where they were, particularly with the curriculum. So, so what does that mean? <laughs> Wow. So what they want to do is is a whole bunch of things that we have actually been trying to warn against for the past four years. And we had hoped that the previous government would have made some more advances in solidifying and protecting public education. So all of this conversation, all of this rhetoric is really about market creation. So right-wing governments around the world like to create a market and commodify education. And the way that they do that is by undermining teachers. They undermine the curriculum. And then they commodify education by talking about it in terms of parental choice, which is very distinctly different from a child's right. So children have the right to a rich and comprehensive education, regardless of where they're from. When you put that in terms of a parent's choice, then parents start to choose something that they think, how can they provide an advantage to their children? How can they put their children in a homogeneous environment where they're not going to be bothered by those kids? And so all of the rhetoric and all of the policies that this new government is coming in is going to be bringing into place, like lifting the cap on charter schools, talking in terms of undermining curriculum, talking about parental's right to choose, are all ways that you set up a system that is marketized. And it's, it's literally market creation. And anywhere that the system has existed, it's only ever served to benefit people who can choose who have the privilege, who have the finances, who have English as a first language, who understand the system. And so it's only really going to widen inequity, and we're going to have a a system that looks a lot like the American system with every passing day. Wow. Um, Okay, so now I'm wondering if you can share some examples, perhaps, that stories that you've heard, experiences that you've heard, and they could even be from the news or personal experiences or just through the organization. So many, so many experiences. Want to hear them? Yeah. So we, I mean, we, you know, I, I, we've had people come up to us who want to attend a Spanish program and they've recently immigrated from Mexico and they're told they shouldn't go to the Spanish program because they're not there to teach English as a first language. Their children already know Spanish. It's not a heritage program. This is not the community for them. Um, so they should leave. So would you say that if it was French and somebody came from France that or Montreal or, or somewhere from Quebec? They, they would tell them to go to the Francophone board and they would say, again, this school is not for you. So the point is that public schools were once the domain or the premise upon which public education was built is that a public school would accept anyone that comes to their door. That's no longer the case. We find reasons to turn people away, whether they speak too much Spanish or not enough English. Uh, if, if French is their first language, kids who have dyslexia are are consistently counseled out of language programs. So language programs in and of themselves have become the domain of generally wealthy, uh, non-diagnosed children. Right. As soon as you get a diagnosis, whether it's gifted, dyslexia, dyscalculia, this is not the right fit for you. And the 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 reasoning given, I'm, I'm not here to say that it's uh, malicious, that the intent is bad. And one of the things we talk a lot about is intent versus impact. Not here to discuss the intent, but the impact of that. Principals will say, you know, we're a French immersion school, so all of our resources are scarce resources because education is underfunded go towards French immersion programming. So we can't help your child with their dyslexia or their dyscalculia or their ADHD or their Asperger's because we don't have the resources for it. And using that um, kind of excuse absolves the principal from taking kids from a wide variety of backgrounds. And no parent is then going to say, I'm going to put them here anyway. 
in spite of somebody telling me that they don't have the resources for my child, I'm going to put them there anyway. They will take them and put them somewhere else. So that happens a lot in language programs. We also see, um, as I mentioned, lots of disproportionate discipline. We don't track these things in Alberta. We don't, we don't have any race-based statistics of how children of color experience education in this province. But we know because people come to us and tell us, my suspension was more frequent or more severe than, than kids of non-color. We also know kids of color come to us and say that they've been streamed. They can't choose the same courses. They're consistently counseled out. We had an entire community come to us. This was a couple of years ago when the school that they had chosen to go to no longer had busing uh, through the board for their kids to access that school. And we had a conversation with 40 people in the room uh, and we, we, we chatted for a good long time. And through their stories, we were getting this this very big image of the school board telling these folks, we're going to we're going to split you all up and divide and conquer. This is literally what they were told. And one of the moms in the room at the end of 40 minutes of conversation said to us, you know, this this feels racist to us because we're the only community that no longer has an option for for a way to get our kids to school. And it was from my perspective, it was blatantly racist. It was very obviously racist, but that's not the, that's not my place to come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's their place to, to recognize and understand that that's the experience they're having. And they're not alone. I mean, the system consistently makes the experience and the challenges towards achieving an education more difficult for people in poverty, which we know disproportionately affect people of color. Uh, and women, single women, women of color, even more disproportionately affected. So the barriers of fees, of transportation, of fundraising, of access to quality special programming, all make the experience more difficult for kids of color. And we do it across the province, and we do it across our systems, and we do it behind this really, you know, this really benign experience of choice. You know, we have gifted programs where we segregate kids. Well. Who's looking at who gets to be gifted? How do we diagnose gifted? Why is it? And there are articles written everywhere else in the world. Who's disproportionately gifted? Dis- disproportionately happens to be white, affluent kids. And and a, a big reason that is, is because the way that giftedness presents itself in the classroom is usually unruly behavior, um, maybe talking back, boredom, disruption. When a child of color exhibits those characteristics, and a white affluent child uh, displays those characteristics. How do we address those situations differently? Do we see one is potentially gifted and one is needing medication? I don't know because we don't collect the statistics. But the anecdotal evidence of people's real lived experience tell us that that's the case. Yeah, and we can see that, you know, when parents do try to go to the systems, they get, exactly as you said, they get this pushback in various different ways. And just recently on the news, we had heard of a young uh, Syrian girl who had uh, came here as refugees and she had unfortunately died by suicide. So just wanted your comments on that, where the school is kind of denying that this was an actual issue. And then there was another article saying that in the same school, this is an issue by other folks of color. Yeah, I mean, there's so many facets to that. You know, whether or not the board thinks it's an issue, it is an issue because it happened. So why would there not be an opportunity there for the board to evaluate its systems, which it did? However, I think the systems themselves are built of, upon a very sort of Eurocentric white person's experience in the system. And the reality is, is that 
people um, who come to this country from a different cu- different culture experience the system differently, and we need to see it through their eyes. So, for example, one of the uh, ways in which we we sort of make our, or propagate oppressive ideals is this idea of parent engagement. So there's this idea within sort of Western culture that parental engagement is a huge indicator of child success. So if the parent shows up to parent-teacher interviews, that parent cares more about their kid. If the parent is helping the child with homework, that parent cares more. That's a, that's a cultural bias. Mm-hmm. There are cultures where parents... First of all, they might be working two hour, two jobs, hourly wage jobs, minimum wage, and can't come to parent-teacher interviews. That's That goes without saying. But there are also cultural components where parents believe and, and hold teachers in such high regard that they're not going to hypermanage or helicopter parent their kids. It doesn't mean they don't care about their child's education. It's that they care from a different perspective. And, and of course, there's language barrier, there's like an economic barrier, but that's a bias that exists where, where teachers and administrators tend to think that those parents care less about their kids. And that's a really dangerous perception to have that harms the community and the child. And there's also that integration process where when I look at myself, when we came here, when I was in grade five, even until high school, I mean, my dad never went to any parent teacher. Maybe he went to one because I forced him or like they were like, your dad has to come, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't. He, he never really helped us with homework either, to be honest. That was just kind of like our responsibility. And he took us to like tutoring and things like that, but never him personally. And like you said, three jobs, exactly the same thing. Not like he had time, single dad, all that, all that stuff on the side. But also it was that cultural thing. And now, you know, with my sister, she's in high school now. It's a little bit different story. And it, I think it's that integration process. Of course, now he has one job as well so a lot of things absolutely and where would those parents go like uh, Amal's uh, parents if they if English is a is is a second language mm-hmm. which it was for them they needed a translator what gets lost in translation they have six other children yeah you know where is the where is where are the resources where she's at and this is something that uh, support our students Alberta calls for is why don't we have in schools where we know we've got lots of newcomer students with child psychologists with trauma specialists with counselors with mediators where the kids are spending the majority of their day can we change the system absolutely so how do we how do we view it from their perspective as opposed to from this really defensive fragile experience of mm-hmm. we've done nothing wrong there are no problems the systems are in place we know that's not true we don't have the statistics pr- to prove it but we have to start living uh, listening to people's real lived daily experiences and understand how difficult it is to navigate a world that is not made for you that doesn't understand your language or your culture or what you've just been through. You know, when my parents were here, my mom was here. I think she got arrived when she was 24 years old, didn't speak the language, had never seen snow in her life, didn't drive, had to take the bus with three kids to get groceries, minus 20. Zero supports. You know, going to parent-teacher interviews was the last thing on her mind. She was just trying to get us fed and in bed. So how we understand how people navigate not just education but society in general has to change and it has to be a bit more compassionate and it has to be better resourced indeed thank you so much for sharing all this i just have a final question i know you've kind of already touched on this but solutions you've spoken about a lot of various different things and i know you've given some solutions as well but um what are some of the things that we can do not just as everyday people but also people within the system yeah so i think one of the things that we you know we 
Support Our Students Alberta has a 10-point uh, strategy to achieving equitable and accessible education. One of those things is we have to reevaluate the funding model. The funding model currently uh, propagates all of these inequities. So we fund uh, kids who are already disproportionately wealthy. The system is built around wealthy white uh, English as a first language kids. So we need to change that. We also need to start questioning this labyrinth of choice within our system. What we're forcing people to do is to choose music programs over language programs, over arts programs. And that the reality is there's a significant part of our population that doesn't have that choice. And they're having to have a lesser quality education or perceived. And, and the perception is really important, right? Because it can have a really strong placebo effect. Understanding that we need all children all children to have access to quality, rich, universal education that includes music and it includes languages and it includes science, includes phys ed for everyone. That makes our society better. And the third component, I think, is to recognize that racism, and, and we discussed this a little bit earlier, but that racism and the acts of racism, not necessarily racists. I think a lot of the discussion we're having lately is about racists as people, which means we're pointing at other people and we're we're identifying white supremacists and Nazis, which absolutely exists, absolutely is problematic, absolutely is, is actually terrifying that that exists again. But it's a lot, there's a lot of parallels to, you know, I'm a mother, so I know that we used to talk about boogeymen, you know, the, the, the strange boogeyman, the stranger danger about kids identifying somebody who could be a danger to them. And we realize that kids internalize that dialogue as though it was this monster, this strange person. And they, the reality was is that the danger really lied with, you know, with the hockey coach or the really nice neighbor or the doctor or um, your, your Boy Scouts supervisor. That's the same. The same is true in, 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 in aspects of racism. So, it's not always the racism we're not always worried about is really obvious. Sometimes it's the principal who counsels you out or it's the teacher who grades differently or it's the resource officer who disproportionately disciplines uh, kids of color. Um, it's the psychologist who doesn't translate for the ESL family. So these are all biases we need to look out for and we need to not be so fragile about looking inwards and how we're complicit in the system to, to really fix it. All right, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of Mosaic Talk. This is your host, Iman Bukhari.